All right, well, we've been studying for the past few weeks this, this period of, of church history shortly after or kind of overlapping with all these different periods. They kind of mingle together on the edges, but you have this period of the, the early church fathers, these disciples of the original apostles, and then that's kind of followed by some, some emphasis on what we call the apologists, those who are defending the faith. You have this, this extant writings of these these people who were defending the faith, basically defending the Christian faith against what we described as baseless rumors coming largely from secular, heathenistic, Roman Empire kind of culture, whether it be the state or whether it be just culturally in, in the communities that they, the church occupied. And then you also had this defense against lofty criticisms against Christianity uh, namely, that Christianity is really only for the base. It's only for the ignorant, the unintelligent. It, it's, it's not, it, it does not satisfy the demands of reason and rational thinking amongst the elite. So you had these two sort of angles that these attacks against Christianity could come from and the writings that you find in this early part of the second, or this, this part of the second century and and into the third century, kind of focus the, the, the defense of the faith against those two fronts. You move into a period of time, um, kind of overlapping again with this period of time, but in the, in the second and third century, on into, the, you know, on into church history, this is something that we deal with today. By the way, all these things that we're talking about, they continue on. There, there's nothing new under the sun, as we talked about before. But you move to this period beyond just dealing with the attacks from without to confronting error within, dealing with heresy and false teaching. And that begins to emerge early on as well. We've already seen this, in fact, when we were studying through the first 30 years of church history in the book of Acts, and you see what happens with the Judaizers. I feel like a teacher the first day of class, right? Filling in the blanks. (laughs) Remember the Judaizers, obviously that was a major, major strand of false teaching that quickly emerged in the early church for a lot of obvious and understanding, understandable reasons. You can see how this could easily happen where this, this trying to transition the, the Jews from an entrenched law-keeping, law-based understanding of being right with God to salvation by grace and the law just being there to expose our need for this salvation and embracing the gospel of Christ as the only means and the only way to God, this cultural, uh, civil, experiential way of life was hard to let go of. And so you had those that would... Uh, come along and begin to proclaim and teach that salvation was not just from embracing Christ through faith and by grace in Christ. You you had to also be circumcised and keep the civil and ceremonial laws of Moses as an add-on to salvation. And so that was kind of the initial push that the early church um, had to contend with. But of course, it gets bigger and broader than that, and you can kind of see how this could happen too. In the early uh, centuries of the church, when there, it, the, the growth, the sort of the geographic and numerical expansion of the early church was sort of out ahead of its, its capacity to circulate sound doctrine. You know, it took a while for 
the, the, the truth and, and the, the understanding of sound teaching from the apostles to really circulate and be accessible and, and be, you know, everyone to be well taught. But there was also the pressure from the culture, which is always the case, to syncretize things to kind of take a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and maybe we can just put it all together and we can kind of reach some compromise. So you had syncretism, which would take elements of pagan, heathen understanding of, of transcendent things, like why we're here, how we got here, what is the path towards spiritual enlightenment or the way to God or to the supreme being or something like that. And, and then you have this new strand called Christianity, and there's probably elements that, you know, merging them together is probably the way to understand this best. And so you have things like Gnosticism that we'll start looking at next week that was a major, major uh, internal error and heresy that led many, many in the church astray. And you have a lot of New Testament writing that is confronting Gnosticism. And that's how you know that this was widespread. It was rampant. It was a, it was a very, very challenging uh, doctrinal threat to the early church because you have a lot of New Testament writing that specifically goes after that. And we're going to take that up uh, in great detail next week. But just to get in our minds and understanding, what we're talking about here is we're talking about what um, Webster's Dictionary would call a... a an adherence to a religious opinion contrary to church dogma would be sort of a formal way to think about it. Contrary to orthodoxy. Contrary to a straight understanding. Orthodox is just means straight. It's just a straight, clear understanding of truth or, or doctrine. Or you could also define it as dissent or deviation from a dominant theory, opinion, or practice. So in other words, it's taking what has been commonly understood, what has been clearly taught and clearly presented in its most straightforward way, and then beginning to veer off and adopt something that is divergent from that. So it's not like, like thinking about the apologists. They're, they're dealing with just out-and-out attacks from the outside in. This is this divergence from the inside out off of straight understanding, clear understanding of truth that has been adopted, that's been passed on, uh, this deposit of the faith that, we're, that the apostles talk about, that it's been entrusted to you and you pass along to others that gets kind of diverged from and, and skewed and it, it turns into, it can turn into full blown, a full-blown heretical system of belief that people begin to adopt as the truth. And that's, that's the nature of it. That it, it, and it's, it's oriented toward being deceptive. It's oriented toward deceiving people and leading them away from the truth, the clear truth. Irenaeus, who was writing during this time, he says it like this, and I think this is a really, um, a really good way to sum this up, very succinct and very well stated. Irenaeus said this, "'Error never shows itself in its naked reality.'" in order not to be discovered. On the contrary, it dresses elegantly so that the unwary may be led to believe that it is more truthful than truth itself. And that's the nature of what we're talking about when we're talking about false teaching. We're talking about heresy that can take root and take hold of the body of Christ. It's not the kind of thing where you've got people showing up with horns on their heads and, you know, breathing 
smoke out of their nostrils and saying, I am from the pit of hell and I'm here to deceive you. Can you sit down for a moment and let's discuss what I think is right and true? It is completely the opposite. And I love the way Irenaeus said it, that you're led to believe that this false teaching that the unwary receive is more truthful than truth itself. And this is oftentimes what you find with people who get led astray into false doctrine and they begin to embrace it. They become so passionate and convicted about the truthfulness of the lie that it's astounding to watch from the outside sometimes. And that's what, that's what happens with this. That's why, that's why Scripture, especially the New Testament, is replete with warnings and cautions and rebukes against this insidious occurrence in the, in the body of Christ. It's dangerous, and yet it's common. It's to be expected. The Apostle Paul, when he's addressing the Ephesian elders, we've talked about this before, but in Acts, he's addressing the Ephesian elders in that heartwarming farewell address before he departs from them and will likely never see them again, and he knows that, and they know that. And, of course, he spent all that time in Ephesus during his third missionary journey, so he grew very close to them. And one of the things he told them is to watch yourselves. There will arise from within you people who will seek to lead the flock astray. So you have these warnings over and over again. So what I'd like to do today is I'd like to sort of talk about false teaching and false teachers from Scripture, get an understanding of, of how this sort of tends to play out, how this, what this tends to look like, and really give us a sense of how deceptive this can really be. I think that it's important for us to think about this, not just based upon facts or understanding of truth and of sound doctrine as the only thing that we need to be, be mindful of, that we need to make sure that we are immersed in the truth, that we are uh, being discerning about what we're being taught, all these things. But we need to be mindful of the fact that we can adopt sort of attitudes and mindsets of false teachers ourselves if we're not careful. We, we can begin to get focused on in our passion for the truth and, and can get churned up over the same kinds of things that false teachers can, and then we can begin to veer off what really is our mission, what really is the message of the gospel. We can, as believers, who, who in, in all respects are adherents of sound doctrine and sound teaching from Scripture, can become so dogmatic about our understanding of that truth that our our confrontations and our conversations become more about our understanding rather than about the truth itself. It's a very subtle sort of attitudinal difference and distinction there. But I've been guilty of that myself, and I've seen that happen time and time again. And all that is is it just makes the whole issue about us and not about the gospel, not about the truth. So we're going to talk about that as well as we kind of move into this and, and kind of look at this. What I'd like for you to do as kind of our, our reference point for all this, is turn to Matthew chapter 7. And we'll just kind of, we're going to just kind of do a, a running commentary of this section in Matthew chapter 7 and see if we can just draw out some observations or some principles that are helpful to us as we begin to look at some of the heresies that confronted the early church and that are still 
seeds of what we face in erroneous doctrine and heretical teaching even today. Matthew chapter 7, and we'll start in verse 13. This is the end of of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, This is this profound instruction that Christ gave that was astounding. You see there at the end of chapter 7 where it's just, he was teaching with authority. It was astonishing to people, the authority with which he spoke. And this is the tail end of this this instruction in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. And so starting in verse 13, just read along with me, and then we'll kind of do a, a bit of a running commentary and try to draw out some points and principles from it. He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew against and beat that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Now let's kind of break this out in a few little sections here, and think about this from the standpoint of false teaching and false teachers again, that find their way into the body of Christ, integrated into the church, not people from the outside who are obvious to everyone, everyone's view. Notice verse 13, you have this, this beginning you know, sort of statement, this beginning injunction or command by Christ to enter by the narrow gate. And then he goes on to describe or contrast the narrow gate from the wide gate. The gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Here's here's the principle. The narrow gate, salvation in Christ alone, would be the narrow gate in this respect. Or John chapter 10, verse 9 I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Or John chapter 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The narrow gate is salvation in Christ alone. And the wide gate is everything else. Have you ever thought about that? Like, I just for the first time, it feels like I, I started thinking, you know what? I get focused on entering by the narrow gate and how it's hard to enter by the narrow gate. And those who don't enter by the narrow gate, their their end is destruction. But to kind of set this up as the way it's laid out for us and the contrast that's being made here, 
is it's a contrast between one way and everything else. So let's talk about some implications of that. For example, false teaching comes in many forms, in many shapes and sizes, in many shades of nuance. It's everything else except salvation in Christ alone. So it has the capacity to appeal to many, many, many people. That's, a fundamental, that's the fundamental nature of false teaching. You contrast it with the truth, with the narrow way, with one door, one gate, that's it. And that leaves everything else wide open to be categorized as false teaching. It allows for the enemy himself to shade and shape and form things with tremendous craftiness and cleverness and nuance. And to make false teaching widely appealing to masses and masses of people. That's why I make the statement. That's why I read the Irenaeus statement. It's, it's not the kind of thing that comes along and it's just obvious to everybody. It's quite the contrary. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, Paul's encouraging or really charging Timothy. He's challenging him to preach the word. In other words, focus on this one way. Center your instruction on the narrow gate, this one singular door, and be ready for what's going to happen. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now here's the thing. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That is a wide, broad gate. In other words, there's false teaching to suit everyone. there's, There's divergence from sound doctrine in the most subtle forms and shades that would appeal to everyone. And they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Stay focused on the narrow gate, on the message of the gospel of Christ, of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. But know that the gate is wide and many are they that will enter by it. Here's the charge to someone like Timothy. Here's the charge to someone like to, to those of us in this room that our, our gospel initiatives, our, our evangelistic efforts, do not need to be accommodated or adjusted because people aren't buying into it at the rate or at the volume or at the pace that we think we'd like to see it happen. There's one gate. And we need to, need to recognize that there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be appealed to with variances of truth nuances, different forms and shades that appeal to them. And they're going to lap it up eagerly. They're going to, they're going to seek that out. They're going to accumulate those kinds of teachers around them. That's what we can take away from this as it relates to false teaching. 
Let's go on. Look at verse 15. This gets more explicit about the false teachers themselves. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So what can we take away from this? Well, one thing that I thought of is that shallow, undiscerning people rarely recognize false teachers, if ever. They rarely recognize them. Notice that you've got this opening statement of they're like sheep. Outwardly, they're like sheep. In other words, they're like you. He's talking about, he's, he's communicating to the sheep. And he's saying these false teachers will be like sheep among you. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves, but they'll look like sheep. But then he goes on to say, you're going to recognize them. It's an interesting kind of contrast there, right? You won't be able to recognize them, but you will be able to recognize them. In other words, the the statement here is about being discerning, about digging deeper, about looking closer, about evaluating more carefully. In other words, this is not an injunction or a potential rebuke against the false teachers. It's a warning to the sheep. It's a warning to you and to me that, first of all, don't be looking for someone that is clearly, obviously to you at first glance, a false teacher. They're going to look like you. But secondly, that you have to look closer to be able to distinguish. You can't can't be shallow. You can't be undiscerning because if you are, you will not recognize them. You'll see them as just one of you. You'll see them as part of the flock. They become obvious to those who are paying careful attention. That's the point. They become totally obvious to those who are digging deeper, who are thinking more carefully, who are evaluating and scrutinizing more closely. I will make this open and and clear declaration to all of you. Always, always, always feel the freedom to scrutinize the teaching that you're receiving. I say that as someone who's teaching you now. Always to scrutinize it and match it up against the truth of Scripture. That's the call. That's what we're called to. But secondly, always be willing and mature in your thinking to evaluate the alignment of the teacher's teaching and their life and their motive and their habits and their practices of just day-to-day life. Because he talks about fruit. And how many times do we hear about teachers who have this massive following that ultimately get exposed for some moral failure, some, some hidden life. Like for decades, there's been this life of, of moral corruption. And they've, they've led people to believe things that aren't straight, that aren't clear, that aren't according to the clear teaching of Scripture. More times than not, what we'll find with false teachers is that there is, you know, the, the, the passage calls them ravenous wolves, which just means that they want to devour. They, they, they want to feed on the flock. In other words, they are among the flock, not for fellowship with the flock, but to eat them, to devour them, to gratify their own 
carnal lusts, their own cravings for, in this analogy, for satiation, for, you know, eating what they want to eat kind of thing, right? So that's the distinction. The false teacher is ultimately motivated by some selfish, self-gratifying, self-created agenda. But it doesn't necessarily look like that to the passerby, to the undiscerning, to the shallow. Now, if you think about this in light of the early church, we'll stay there for a moment. Think about this in light of the early church. When you had many, many, many coming to faith in Christ from out-and-out paganism, pantheism, idolatry, like nothing even remotely resembling even monotheism, much less you know, one true God, the God of Isaac, Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the, the father of the Messiah, you know, I mean, all that. I mean, they didn't have any concept of that. And they're being saved out of this cultural pantheism and into the church. And they have all these different ideas about spirituality and about eternal things and about the soul and about what happens when you die and all these different concepts going on. And this effort was full on. You could see this in Acts, how the the intent of the apostles to devote time and energy toward training leaders and teachers in the church was, uh, was clearly on display even in Acts. And so you know that this effort was ongoing, but the growth and expansion in volume, as I said before, was, was rapid at that time. So you have many, many, many people who are young in the faith, who are immature in the faith, who are very undiscerning. And so they become very vulnerable to false teaching. Now fast forward to today. Think about the environment that we're operating in today as the church. Think about it from, and, and, and think, try to think about this from the standpoint of the mastermind of deception. The ancient serpent of old from the garden, right? Think about it from that perspective. Wouldn't it be a ripe field to plow in if just basic habits of reading were diminished amongst the population. People don't read anymore. People don't read books anymore. Do you understand that? Like multiple generations now have grown up in an environment where the reading, just reading as a habit and a discipline is on the decline. So it's creating a dependency of people who are totally vulnerable to being indoctrinated by someone who comes along who's read a little bit more than them and can communicate things that they've read. Just think about that from just a basic, the basic understanding of the technological generation that we live in now. Then you take it a step further, and the expansion of our dependency upon entertainment, and the accessibility of entertainment. I mean, just think about the, 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 the implications of an acceleration toward modern culture and modern technology and all the conveniences that that brings that I participate in. Again, this is not some kind of you know, sermon against you know, watching a movie. I'm, I'm a part of it myself. I'm just saying, think about it from the standpoint of a ripe 
fertile and massive field for deception from the truth. If you are, if you are being inculcated and conditioned to crave entertainment, and you're growing up in a world where reading is on the decline, of sitting down and focusing on something for a long period of time. That's just almost a thing of the past. All you got to do is sit down and talk to a few teachers. And they will, they will talk to you for hours about the struggles that they're experiencing at the primary, secondary, and collegiate level. This is a thing. And our drive and our dependence upon being entertained. The field is ripe for false teaching and deception. Then you think about what's happening in the context of the larger church where we're tapping into these kinds, of, these kinds of methods. We're accommodating to these kinds of deficiencies and we're setting up church to be pervasively shallow. The church is becoming a thousand miles wide and one inch deep. That's where we are. That's the day that we're living in. And that is prime condition for deception and false teaching. Why? Because false teachers look like sheep. And it does require you to be discerning, to dig in, to look at the fruit, to evaluate. What kind of tree is this, really? What, 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 what kind of fruit is really being born here? I really need to look closely at it. Shallow and discerning people rarely recognize false teachers, but they become obvious, these false teachers do, to those who are paying careful attention. We already talked about this last week. Jude talks about these hidden reefs that come into your love feasts. They're, they're with you. They're among you. They're a part of you. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3 talks about them, uh, these false prophets. They arise among the people, these false teachers that are among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. That's the nature of it. And we have to be discerning. We have to be watchful. We have to be scrutinizing. We have to be evaluating. Those that are teaching you, teaching you truth, teaching you from Scripture, evaluate them. Scrutinize them. Look at them. Think about it. Know what you're being taught and know who is teaching you. And I'm saying that, putting myself kind of on that altar, if you will, a little bit. Just be... Just be gentle with me a little bit. You know, I mean, don't, you know, when I say scrutinize, be, you know, be gentle as you do that. But I think you understand the point. Um, it's, it's important that we understand that. The issue is the truth, not my presentation of it. The thing that I want to put on display, or the thing that I, you need to hear me putting on display, not that I necessarily will do this perfectly, but the thing that you need to hear me putting before you is what is true. What will help you in your sanctification, what will point you to Christ, not what will make you impressed with how I'm presenting the information. Do you understand that distinction? So those that are gifted in teaching and they do a great job, you know, Pastor Kohler gets up there and he's just very gifted at what he does. But the issue is not his ability to articulate the truth. It's the truth itself. And you find this over and over again in Paul's instruction with the Corinthians, in fact. Some, are say, some, some say, I'm of Apollos. Some say I'm of Cephas. Some say I'm of Paul. It's not about the personalities. And his rebuke was not, don't listen to those guys. He loved those guys. Those guys were gifted teachers, and they were acknowledged gifted teachers. He was saying it's about the gospel. It's about the truth. 
Don't, don't get wrapped up in a personality. But in an entertainment culture, guess what gets the most attention? The personality. That leads to the next principle. Verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, on that day, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. False teachers even deceive themselves and can't even see the twisted pride that lies at the core of their claims. They, can't, they, they, they develop a, a sense of blindness to their own pride. This is a look at me, look what I've done for you kind of declaration. This is a, this is a pointing, this is this, in, in, in this twisted pride that says, even in my declaration of my worthiness to be accepted, I'm pointing to everything that I did that was of a grandiose kind of demonstration. Look at me, look at me, look what I've done, look what I've accomplished. Can you see it? You can't see it? How could you not see it? It's pointing to the person. It's pointing to the person and what the person has accomplished, not to the truth, not to the gospel that they embraced, the gospel that says, apart from Christ, you can do nothing, that you're dead in your sins and trespasses. You have to abandon all, forsake all, be willing to lose all, die to all, and take up your cross and follow me. That's the gospel message. Not point to all your spiritual achievements and say, look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Do you not see it? It becomes this twisted blindness and self-deception. That's why, if you think about it, false teachers don't typically come across as insincere. In fact, most of them... They may start with an insidious intent to deceive. Like, in other words, they know that they're about to do something to deceive, but that's probably the rare case. Most false teaching comes from a place of sincerity. It's just self-deception. And it turns into this twisted pride because it's, it's, look at what I've grown to understand. Do you see this truth that, I know everybody else thinks that this truth means this, but see, really, what I've come to understand is this. Can you see how, how that is, and, and, and there's conviction, there's passion about this new understanding, this new revelation of truth that I've got, and I am so graciously, because I love you, and I want you to, I want you to have success, and I want you to be effective in this life, and I want you to have health and wealth and prosperity, or whatever it might be, whatever the, whatever the, the bonus, the, the gravy on the potatoes is in this, this whole communication, it's, it's pointing back in a twisted way back to the person. Look at me. Look what I'm doing for you. Look at what I'm giving for you. I'm giving to you. Look at my new, my, my, my new creative understanding here that I am so graciously sharing with you so that you can partake in the blessings that I'm partaking in. It's twisted deception of an insidious type. And that's why you have to be discerning. It's not always obvious what's really going on. But to those who are digging deep, it is obvious. It becomes obvious. Well, he kind of wraps up this section, verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Last kind of observation I would make from this section of the Sermon on the Mount is this. Simple devotion to Christ and His Word is the only safeguard against false teaching. And I I use simple devotion intentionally. Simple devotion. Because what you find in false teaching and in those who are quickly captivated by false teaching is something that is usually not simple. It's usually not straightforward. In fact, the appeal oftentimes of false teaching like we'll see with Gnosticism, is the ability to grasp something unique and special and that's secret to most people. It's this subtle nuance of truth that you just you have to look a little bit deeper to understand. And if you look a little bit deeper, then you'll understand it, and then you'll be a part of the truly you know, elite saved. It's that kind of thing. It's, it's pushing itself towards something other than simple, straightforward truth. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Can I say it a different way? I'm the door. Does that help you? Like I'm, I'm like a door. And if you walk through me, through this door, you will find green pastures. I mean, how else can, how else can I say this? How else can I convey to you the message of salvation? It's simple. It's straightforward. But false teaching likes to throw in complexity and nuance. The Apostle Paul had to deal with this with the, with the Corinthians. Remember, the Corinthians were all into Greek philosophy and rhetoric and the ability to persuade with oratory. They, they, they loved that. That was part of their culture. That was how they, that, how they evaluated sort, sort of people who were elite versus not elite. And they got caught up in that, and it created divisions among them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, the Apostle Paul says, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere, or simple is another way to define that, a simple and pure devotion to Christ. That your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere, simple and pure devotion to Christ. When I say simple, I don't mean shallow. Right? We understand the distinction. Because I said earlier, we, we got to dig deep, right? So I'm not talking about shallow. I'm just talking about simple and straightforward. Not, not super mysterious and super secret and super elite. We're talking about simple truth. This term literally means simple. I love the way the Greek term is, is, is defined. It's defined as singleness or without folds like a garment, like a piece of cloth. It's just laid out. No folds, no complex. You've ever had a map? You know, remember, remember maps? Remember folding maps back in the old days before we had you know, our smartphones? And you unfold a map and then you try to fold it back up. And it's like you can almost, I mean, it'll take you 10 minutes to get it back to the way it originally was. Well, it's that idea about, about a piece of cloth. It's this, this term simple is just, it's unfolded. 
It's just laid out. And that's the term here that's used here. It literally is. The ESV translates it sincere, but other, translates it, other translations do translate it simple. Simple and pure devotion to Christ. That's the only safeguard against false teaching. That our, our commitment to understanding truth is to realize that it's straightforward. The thing that makes it difficult, the thing that makes it complicated, is us. It's our flesh, it's our sin nature, it's our desire for something more complex so that we can feel good about what we know. It's all these insidious pockets of pride in our hearts. That's, that's what makes the truth complicated for us. Or we, we make it complicated. We try to make it complicated. But if we maintain a simple devotion to the clear teaching of God's Word, and we're, we're diligent students of that truth, we will recognize false teaching and false teachers instantly. And if we look close enough, if we have an opportunity to look close enough at their lives, we'll see that there's bad fruit there anyway. It's exposing them for who they really are. Not what they're saying, not how clever and skilled they are at presenting what they're saying, but actually who they are. We'll be able to see it, and we'll have the discernment to see it. So as we move forward next week and we start looking at Gnosticism, you know, you start throwing down terms like Gnosticism, and it's like, you know, we don't, I mean, I'm pretty sure that if you go into Starbucks and you, you, know, you see someone that you haven't seen in a while and you sit down and decide to have a cup of coffee with them, I doubt the conversation's going to swerve toward Gnosticism, Right? So, you know, you're like, what, what are we going to do with Gnosticism? The fact of the matter is, is that Gnosticism is a part of a lot of deception. It's actually a part of a lot of Christian deception that's going on even today. And so being able to sort of see the seeds of it and see how it kind of can permeate uh, into the church and into people who would otherwise claim to be believers um, will, I think, be helpful and important foundational um, understanding for us. And to recognize, as we say, none of these things are new. The things that we're facing now, they've faced before, we'll face again. It's just, it's just constant before us. And that's why I love that statement, building your house on a rock. I mean, did you not learn that? If you, were, if you grew up in church, you learned that, that it was a song. The wise man built his house upon the rock. That's what we're talking about, about simplicity. And that's, that's what we're called to, simple devotion to the truth as a key safeguard against false teaching. Any final thoughts or closing comments before we pray and are dismissed? Hey, yep. Question. Um, wondering if um, uh, we could talk a little bit about engaging our, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, brothers and sisters, we know go maybe attend somewhere where uh, we know the teaching is really shallow. If we know that the shallow teaching is, if not hand in hand, false teachings not far away, um, how do we reach out to those brothers and sisters in a, in a loving way uh, to warn them or at least engage them <coughs> to think about whether or not they're actually receiving meat? Um, I, was, I was speaking with a, a, a guy this week and it just occurred to me that I think the church he goes to, they're they're so concerned with Sunday morning as an evangelistic experience. Mm-hmm. 
that she just the, the pastors are not equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. Mm-hmm. The pastors are evangelizing on Sunday morning, along with the you know the people who go there. But that's what it seemed to me like. Maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I'm curious what uh, if y'all had I don't know any advice just on engaging people without just blasting a pastor or something like that. Yeah, that's that's a real that's a real um, that's a real potential minefield. Um, because, because, um, it's not uncommon in those environments for there to be, I mean, if you use the term cult of personality, that can, that, that's provocative because you're saying, or you think that you think we're a cult, you know, um, I'm using that as a sort of a colloquial description, descriptive phrase, not to necessarily say that the whole church and everybody in it, they're part of a big giant cult. But to me, it's, I would say that you want your conversations, what I've experienced in similar situations is that you can kind of pick up on what's really going on and how this person really thinks about things because they continue to refer back to the person. They always refer back to the teacher. So their point of reference and really at a fundamental level, they're the characteristic of their devotion is to the teacher, not to the truth being taught. So even if the teacher might be conveying, you know, some truth a lot or from time to time, whatever. I mean, their, their, their reference point is the person, the personality. Or it's to the program. It's to the, it's to the method. It's to, it's to the, the appeal of it. So I, I would just say that you got to be careful because... Um, that's a hard thing to, to talk about without sounding like you're, you think you're better than them personally and that you know, you're not even a part of that body and you just think that you have the right to criticize the person that they've grown to love, who, you know, in all honesty, you don't, you don't really know. I mean, I don't know. The only, the only real pastor that I know, of a, you know, the teaching pastor of a church that I know right now is Shane. That's it. I don't know, I don't know any of these other people in these churches around here. I mean, I know a few. I mean, I know some others, but... but Really, so if even if I go to a place to try to attack that particular point, I'm going to come across like I'm I'm literally trying to speak about some a person that they admire and look up to that I don't really know. I mean, I genuinely don't know them, so I could be actually guilty of of you know being slanderous or something like that. So I would just say you got to find a way to constantly just bring up and talk about actual. Truth, actual passages of scripture, or you know, and be reflective in your conversations. You know, I was, I was, I've been, I've struggled with this before. What are your thoughts? You know, I've been, I've, I've had to wrestle with this principle and how it applies to me. And I'm just wondering how, you know, how you've, have you ever had to deal with that, or what are your thoughts? I mean, you try to just draw them into a relationship of discussion around the truth. If you, if you don't have the opportunity to do that, and you're just looking for a shot to fire in that you know, those occasional in- encounters, that's probably not a wise strategy. Um, you might have to just live with some of that tension that you can't necessarily, you don't really have the context of communication to be able to really, you know, deal with that. Uh, I, I know what you're talking about, though, and it can be really frustrating. And I just, I just think that, you, you know, I just have, the, I try to think about these simple principles or axi- axiomatic statements that I can come back to is that you know you want you want to be known for 
if you're known for anything, I mean, if you want to be known for the things that you believe, not for the things you don't believe. You follow what I'm saying? You, you want to be communicating and conversant about what you love and what you hold dear and what, what, has, what has wrought salvation in your heart, not about the things that you think are bad for the church. Or You know, if you're focusing on that, then that in and of itself is going to potentially be a barrier to to some good conversation and communication. So I think that's a mistake that we can easily make because there are some things that you're just, you're like, you're really, it's frustrating and it's like, you know, you really want them to be able to see things, you know, in the truth clearly and all that. And so, but I I think that we have to be, there's a whole lot that we can't see that they're thinking about and that they're experiencing and that they're, you know, the ways that they've come to believe the way they believed. And if we presume too much on that in our approach to communicate with them, we're going to create an offense, an unnecessary offense. I'm not talking about the, the offense of the gospel, the stumbling block that the gospel is. I'm talking about us personally. We're going to offend them when we really didn't have to. It's tough, though. you got a similar situation with people who have grown up, for example, in Roman Catholicism, and they, they don't even really know what all they're supposed to believe about Roman Catholicism, but they know that it's how they've grown. It's what they believe in the... And the, the system, that's, that's the church. You know, it's sort of a cultural, um, um, hereditary kind of traditional faith. And it's their, their whole family is that. So you have to understand that, that if you're too aggressive, in, you know, rhetorically with that, then you're going to be, it's going to come across like you're just, you're basically accusing them and their whole family of being pagans going to hell. I mean, that's how it's going to be understood and interpreted. So I just say, let's talk about what we're for. Let's talk about what we, what we believe and what saved us with humility and with just joy and gratitude as opposed to trying to figure out how we can defeat your argument for you defending what you're defending. I don't know if that's helpful, but that's, that's to me what I would be thinking about. All right. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed.